This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. This week, we're taking a diagnostic look at our current epidemic of irrational thinking. Does philosophy perhaps offer a cure? Your son believes that both Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister, and Michelle Obama, the former First Lady, are actually men. Yes, that has been said to me, yes. It's really outlandish and we've heard things from the Queen being a shape-shifting lizard. If people wear red shoes, then that's they're wearing red so that when babies are slaughtered and the blood falls on the ground, that no one will see the blood spatter. Individuals propagated this conspiracy theory that the United States government was secretly being run by a cabal of Satan-worshipping, cannibalistic child predators who were running a global sex trafficking ring. Now, this conspiracy theory was not only untrue, it was, in my view, indiscriminately crazy. Indiscriminately crazy is a tempting way to describe a lot of what we're hearing lately about COVID-19, about politics, about the media and so on. Trolls and propagandists aside, there just seems to be an astonishing number of people out there who genuinely believe that the virus is a hoax, that the vaccine is some sort of mind-control drug, that everyone working in our global public health institutions is somehow in on the plot. And that's before we even get started on Donald Trump and the deep state and who won the 2020 election and all that nonsense. But crazy doesn't quite capture what's going on. The really weird thing about a lot of conspiracy theorists is that they present as perfectly normal human beings. So why do so many apparently sane people embrace such bizarre and easily refuted notions? My guests this week believe they have an answer. I'm Stephen Nadler, and I'm the Vilas Research Professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the Department of Philosophy. I'm Larry Shapiro. I'm the Berendt Ench Professor of Philosophy here at the University of Wisconsin. Stephen Nadler and Larry Shapiro have a new book out, and its title tells you everything you need to know about where they're coming from. The book's titled, When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People, How Philosophy Can Save Us From Ourselves. Stephen, Larry, welcome to the program. And uh, I want to begin with the title of your book and the assumption in the title that whatever's driving the current upsurge in irrational belief, it's not entirely a matter of malign intent or, or poor character. We have good people or, or good enough people who are thinking badly. So if they learn to think better, or if we all learn to think better, because you're interested in how philosophy can save us from ourselves, do we then become better people? Is there some sort of moral formation that goes along with learning to exercise sound reason? Uh, we think there is. I mean, the reason why we talk about bad thinking and good people is because we're trying to be as optimistic as possible. Um, if somehow the bad thinking was rooted in uh, maliciousness or deep evil, then I think we'd be a lot worse off than we are. But to the extent that rationality guides morality, or at least good moral behavior, um, we think that being reasonable is intimately connected with doing the right thing, thinking well about what to do, and what our duties and obligations are to others and to ourselves and to society. And you can look at this in two different ways. First of all, on any given occasion, when you're trying to decide what the right thing to do is, or what it is you should believe, or how you should act, on any given occasion, we would hope that people would be reasonable and not give in to false facts, false news, 
uh, misinformation, but rather exercise their rationality and assess the reliability of information and tailor their beliefs to the evidence. And that's, I mean, on any given occasion. Uh, more deeply, we think that the habit of good thinking and the habit of being rational is a matter of character. When you are a rational person, it's not just that on this or that occasion you're exercising your reason, but that your life is guided by a reasonable approach to facts and especially to uh, the way in which you adopt beliefs and the way in which you continue to hold on to beliefs and thus giving up beliefs in the face of evidence to the contrary. So yeah, we think there's a very intimate connection between acting well, being a good person, and exercising our human capacity for rationality. I guess though that, I mean, there's no shortage of historical instances of highly cultured, highly educated, rational people doing terrible things. How does that sort of complicate the argument you're putting forward there? Uh, That's absolutely right, David. There are very smart people, very rational people who do terrible things. And probably what's going on here is they're starting with false premises or misunderstandings of situations. So you could be a perfectly good reasoner and come to a, a valid conclusion. But if it's based on a a false premise, your conclusion, even though it's derived validly from these premises, will probably also be false or, or could also be false. So what we're finding, say, just to take a an example, um, you might have someone denying the efficacy of a, of a COVID vaccine, and they might be reasoning rationally from data, but the data is not to be trusted. So in many cases, Perfectly good reasoning will take you to the wrong conclusion. I guess what we're saying as well is that being reasonable, there's more to it than simply being a good arguer. I mean, there are lots of people out there who can argue their way from point A to point B and are very effective uh, rhetoricians. But good thinking is not just about being able to follow premises to a conclusion, but being able to assess the reliability and truth of the premises themselves. One opinion that we often hear put forward is that when we look at this mass uptake of conspiracy theory and people being prepared to believe stuff that just doesn't stand up to the slightest intellectual scrutiny, that what we're seeing is a failure of education and the result of a a systematic hollowing out of public education systems in America and elsewhere that's been going on for decades. To to what extent do you go along with that? I think we're entirely in agreement with that. to talk about just our own field for a minute, philosophy, um, there's not, I think, really a lack of students willing to take philosophy courses at universities, but universities seem to be gutting their philosophy offerings, uh, cutting back on departments, um, shrinking them, or even eliminating philosophy majors. Um, And this is happening across the humanities generally. I mean, philosophy is great, and I think it's an important tool uh, for becoming a reasonable person, but the humanities generally make a very important contribution to forming us into good, rational people who are capable of assessing historical, political, cultural, visual evidence uh, and making sense of the world around us. Uh, The other domain is elementary education. Why aren't we exposing children to philosophy at an earlier age? We teach them mathematics, we teach them science, and these are very difficult disciplines. But children are natural philosophers. They're always asking why. They always want more and more reasons. They want to understand things. Um, So I think if we were to somehow begin a philosophical education sooner uh, in our youth, we might end up with a more enlightened and wise citizenry. 
the importance of education is is pretty apparent when you look at certain trends in our country. So in our country, there's a correlation between states that are governed by Republicans, states in which people refuse to wear masks or don't believe that the COVID vaccine is, is safe, and states in which the budget for education is continuously slashed year after year. There might be a common cause to all of this, but the obvious conclusion is that states with poor education are also states that are are more prone to these false and malignant beliefs. And of course, that takes us into some of the political influences that that are playing into this, which I'd like to get onto a little later in the conversation. I'm very interested to talk about that. You make the point in your book that people aren't necessarily dumb, they're more stubborn. What sort of distinction do you draw there between stubbornness and stupidity? Stubborn people might be among the smartest people on earth. What makes them epistemically stubborn, as, as we label these people, the epistemically stubborn person is the person who, who might be quite clever, quite smart, but nevertheless refuses to tailor their beliefs to the evidence. And so they, they end up continuing to believe something that they shouldn't believe, given the evidence, or, or not believing something that they should, given the evidence, because of stubbornness. So this is quite distinct from simply being being dumb. There's also an ethical kind of stubbornness that we examine in the book where, and it's not unlike the epistemic stubbornness where you persist in a belief no matter what. Uh, The ethical stubbornness we look at is where you persist in a form of behavior, despite the fact there are very good reasons why you should not be behaving in that way. For example, people who blindly and thoughtlessly follow rules, despite the fact that the way in which they follow the rules ultimately end up undermining the purpose of the rule in the first place. Um, so there's a kind of stubbornness, not just in the way we think, but also in the way in which we behave. And, you know, one of the titles for the book that we played with originally was On American Stupidity, but uh, our publisher didn't like that. And I think it was wise not to go yeah, with that. It's, yeah. You know, we don't want to alienate people. We're trying to convince people. Mm-hmm. Well, on stubbornness, then let's say I'm sick and I go to the doctor and I get some tests done. And what comes back is incontrovertible medical evidence that I have a terminal disease and I'm going to die in a few months. Other evidence exists to suggest that if I push back against the medical evidence and refuse to believe what I'm being told by the experts, that I may well extend my lifespan. And we've seen that happening. Does that demonstrate a certain beneficial power in epistemic stubbornness? In a case like that, it's useful to think about a distinction that the the great American pragmatist William James discussed in the uh, late 19th century. James distinguished between different kinds of oughts. So we understand a moral ought. A moral ought is something like you, you ought to keep your promises. And then there, there's the rational ought, which is um, the, the ought of epistemology. You, you ought to believe what the evidence supports. But the third kind of ought, we might describe as a, a prudential ought, where a prudential ought involves the kinds of behavior or beliefs you should engage in because it does something good for you. So the case you're describing, David, is the case where rationally, epistemically, you ought not to believe that you'll survive the cancer. But prudentially, you still might ought to believe that the cancer will go into remission because having such a belief is good for you. So how can a deeper engagement with philosophy help with with the bad kind of epistemic stubbornness? Well, philosophy provides us with tools both for assessing our own beliefs and determining when we ought and ought not to believe something, 
um, but also for assessing the claims made by others. One of the very first things we do in a philosophy class is uh, go over the distinction between valid and invalid arguments, sound and unsound arguments. A sound argument is a valid argument where the premises are true and so the conclusion is true. And also various legitimate and fallacious forms of reasoning. So at a, at a formal level, philosophy gives you the tools for being rationally critical of your own mental states and the states of others. Uh, but it also encourages people to be, and this goes way back to Socrates, it encourages people to be reflective upon themselves, to pay attention and to critically evaluate what you do and do not know. Uh, along with epistemic stubbornness, there comes epistemic arrogance, which is a matter of thinking you know things when in fact you don't know things. And so an, an honest kind of epistemic humility is, I think is one of the great lessons of philosophy. It's fun to teach critical thinking, um, basic logic to students. And, and one sort of common exercise that we do when teaching logic to students is have them read editorials and newspapers or, or op-ed pieces or, or have them watch uh, Fox News and teach them about the various fallacies and the various rules for good reasoning and let them at these, these editorials, these Fox News commentators. And without too much training, they're able to identify where the reasoning in these pieces go wrong. That's the kind of training that philosophy is, is capable of uh, imparting on people. You are in the Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, talking this week about all the bizarre and irrational beliefs that increasing numbers of people appear to be holding, why they're holding them, and what philosophy can do to help them, and really to help all of us. My guests are Stephen Nadler and Larry Shapiro, philosophy professors from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the authors of When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People, How Philosophy Can Save Us From Ourselves. When you say that people should learn to exercise reason and to weigh evidence and examine their own prejudices and so on, that seems to be based on a Cartesian model of the reflective, rational individual, you know, sitting in his armchair, figuring things out for himself. The examined life as a first-person exercise, as you put it in the book. And I wonder whether you agree that what we see happening out on the streets with the anti-vax protests and the Stop the Steal protests and the QAnon movement and all the rest of it, that this is all evidence of the ways in which reason and knowledge and the establishment of truth are not really first-person singular exercises, but primarily social phenomena. They have to do with a sort of uh, feeling of trust as much as they do with reason. How does that play into the argument that you're advancing in the book? I think that's a, that's a nice way to put it. There's definitely a social dimension to bad thinking, not just social media, but the power of crowds and uh, the reinforcement of repetition and word of mouth uh, and the media. We can't think of this simply, as you put it, as uh, a first-person meditator uh, trying to decide what they should or should not believe. On the other hand, uh, philosophy or good Cartesian reasoning or good Socratic reasoning gives you some form of protection from falling prey to the pernicious social aspects of, of false information. Well, I'm wondering where politics fits into all of this. 
because you would expect that a, an epidemic of irrational thinking would affect people across the political spectrum. But the really extreme stuff seems to be happening over on the political right. Why is that, do you think? I think part of it goes back to a point we made earlier about the level of education in more conservative states. The educational systems there are simply not doing their job. They're not instructing students to reason well. And they're not because politicians in those states don't want people reasoning well because they'll end up losing political races. So there's a political motivation for those in power to, of course, stay in power. And one way to do that is to prevent people from seeing the harm in the policies that they're uh, generating. We did try very hard. We struggled really hard not to make this a partisan book. Um, and so, you know, we tried to make it seem as if the kind of bad thinking we're concerned with is not essential to one particular party or another. It, it's really hard to maintain that equanimity these days. But there are good examples of bad thinking on the far left side of the spectrum as well. And, you know, you don't have to go back to um, Stalinism. Um, I think sometimes the left in this country overreaches perhaps not in terms of moral principle, but in terms of strategy or tactics. Um, so I think we do need to be even-handed. Although if you're concerned with the future of democracy and the way in which our democratic system, our republics and republic, democratic republics around the world are under threat, it seems to be coming from the populist right, not from the left. Yeah, I do take your point about the bad thinking that we see on the left, but it's so interesting to me that when the great culture war schism happened between the left and the right, all of the mainstream promoters of sound epistemic hygiene, right, the, the academy, the quality media, uh, science, all of these institutions ended up somehow associated with the political left, while the conservative movement set about constructing its own epistemic universe, its own universe of media and think tanks and academies devoted quite openly to advancing conservative ideals and interests. And again, that's a problem that seems to go beyond questions of rational thinking. It's more like a kind of tribalism where what's true is conceived as what benefits my people, my tribe. And of course, I should add, we do see an element of this on the left as well. But there are more than enough historical instances of how when tribalism and reason come into conflict, tribalism is going to win, hands down. Or, or, or does it? <laughs> I guess that's my question. Do you think that reason can prevail over tribalism? I think that's a very complex question because the reasons for tribalism are so varied. Uh, one thing to think about is that many of the more conservative states in this country tend also to have populations with, with lower income. They tend to be states that are big into coal mining, big into fracking, oil drilling. And all of these activities are, of course, activities that will make these people skeptical about things like climate change because they depend on fossil fuels for their life. So that's one source of tribalism, just the fact that people live in states where their uh, income depends on uh, resources that they want to perpetuate, despite the fact that it might be harming the climate. And so this gives them a, a reason to deny things like climate change. We've talked about bad thinking and good people. What about bad people? What about the, the Steve Bannons and the, the Tucker Carlsons, people like Sean Hannity and uh, Alex Jones? You know, I, I, I think it's, it's quite apparent that these guys don't believe a word of half of what they go on about, or at least they don't care whether or not it's true. 
And that's something that Rush Limbaugh admitted. I mean, he just came right out and said it. Nobody cared. They're just making money or, or making political capital out of sowing confusion. And it doesn't seem like any amount of philosophical training is likely to make them stop. How do we deal with them? Yeah, these are, these are bad people. I agree with you. And it's unclear how to deal with them. Alex Jones was just successfully sued. There'll be a lot of uh, millions of dollars in damages for his lies about the Sandy Hook shooting. There are boycotts against people like Hannity and Tucker Carlson. I think boycotting their shows is in the right direction. Some reporters just left Fox News because they objected to Tucker Carlson's uh, documentary on the January 6th uprising. Insurrection is a better term for it. So I think there has to be increasing social pressure on these people to stop the bullshit, stop lying. And the more educated the audience, the more we think philosophical training an audience is exposed to, the less appealing, I think, will, will be figures like Carlson and, and Hannity and Bannon. Dave, I totally take your uh, view on these individuals. And I would add to the social pressure that we should exercise on them, um, there has to be financial pressure. Uh, corporations, which have any interest whatsoever in the well-being of our society, need to stop funding either directly or indirectly through advertising revenue, what's happening with Fox News and the various sorts of podcasts that spread the false information. You know, it all comes down to the pocketbook. And if Tucker Carlson is going to continue to get wealthy by promoting lies, uh, why would he stop? Well, just to finish by bringing the discussion back to a, a sort of person-to-person -person level, Critical thinking is a learned skill. It takes time to cultivate. But for most of us, when we find ourselves in a face-to-face -face encounter with bad thinking, either literally face-to-face -face or, or maybe on social media, we don't have the time or the opportunity to engage the other person in some sort of uh, epistemic training. So when you're in a discussion with someone who is thinking badly, I don't know, someone who believes that the Clintons are running a, a deep state cabal of Satanist pedophiles, how do you communicate? How do you try to set that person on the path of good thinking just in the course of a conversation? And is this something that you found yourselves having to do? Well, the first thing you do is you buy our book and you give it to them, of course. <laughs> of course. I mean, it's a tricky thing because some of these people are relatives or, or people, longstanding friends, and we want to maintain these relationships, but also help move this person to a better uh, state of mind. So one not very effective way of dealing with them is to simply say you're wrong and throw all the evidence in their face and or stop speaking to them and, and to take an aggressive or agonistic approach. Uh, I think a more effective way, and I, I found this myself, is when they come out with a claim that is just, I mean, literally crazy and incredible, um, you simply take uh, the rational route and saying, well, why do you believe that? And you force them to think about what evidence they may or may not have for their belief and whether they should continue to hold it. And so let's say they come up with a response. Well, I believe uh, this because of that. Well, then you simply say, okay, so why do you believe that? And eventually they're going to be caught up short. They're not going to be able to defend their belief because they're going to see that ultimately they really have no answer to the question as to why they believe that. And if it doesn't get them to give up the belief, at least it forces them to perhaps, and again, maybe we're being optimistic here, be a bit more reflective on why they believe the things they believe. 
it's a very childish question. Why? You know, why do you believe that? Why, why, why? But at some point, you hope to get through. Many of the most convinced conspiracy theorists tend to suffer tremendously from something called the confirmation bias. They discard or don't even consider evidence that might tell against their view and look at only the evidence that seems to favor their view. So one question that I think is useful when encountering a person like this is to ask them, what evidence would count against their view? Don't tell them that you have that evidence. Just try to get them to articulate what sort of thing would perhaps convince them that they're not correct or perhaps cast doubt on what they believe. And if if they have nothing to say about that, then that's worth pointing out uh, because a view that can never be shown to be false is a, is a trivial view. So I try to get them to explain to me the sorts of things that they would admit would bring them to doubt something. And then you can go from there. Steve, you mentioned giving conspiracy theorists a copy of your book. And I guess the problem there is that there's no way that any of them are going to read it. But what do you do about that problem, that the people most in need of this book are the least likely to pick it up? Yeah, I mean, we agree totally. This is going to be the ongoing problem. Um, what we what we hope to do is um, at least reach out to the people who know somebody like that and give them um, both the tools and maybe the inspiration not to break off the relationship or throw up their hands in frustration, but a, a way of leading these people back into a more rational way of thinking. Um, and you know, perhaps we're uh, we're being a little Pollyannish. Um, but at this point, what else can you do? I mean, we have to maintain some level of hope. Otherwise, our politics, our environment, um, the fate of the earth, um, all hinges on our drastically changing the direction in which um, we're moving around the world. I think it's promising that uh, the, the book Steve and I wrote is not the only title with a similar theme that was recently released. There's several other books hitting the market or have just, that have just hit the market with the same sort of themes about the, the need for more rational reflection in, in, in the world. And that suggests to me that the world is ready for a kind of new enlightenment. Uh, I, I'd like to draw as an analogy the vegetarian movement. So the vegetarian movement had a, a sort of main source back in 1975, a, a book uh, the Australian philosopher Peter Singer wrote called Animal Liberation. And very few vegetarians today have read that book or even know of the book's existence. But with that book and then subsequent books led to increased acceptance of vegetarianism. And now you go into a restaurant and, and you expect to see vegetarian options. You, that, that was not the case when I was growing up in the 70s. And it could be that over time, as more books about the importance of reasoning hit the public, there will be kind of this seeping into common thinking, the sorts of principles that guide good thinking. Larry Shapiro in conversation there with Stephen Nadler. They're both professors of philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and they're co-authors of a new book, When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People, How Philosophy Can Save Us From Ourselves. Publication details on the Philosopher's Zone website. And that's it for another week. Next week, we're going to be talking mathematics, which you might think of as one of those technical fields of knowledge that are helpful in getting rockets to the moon and making sure that buildings don't fall over, but don't have much to say about living a good life. 
Well, prepare to be surprised next week when we'll be considering mathematics as a means of achieving moral improvement. That's The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. I hope you can join me then. Bye for now. Listener.